In this world of rapid change, there is an increasing need for news and information interpreted through a Christian worldview. Today on Issues in Perspective. Well, as existence of FedEx and UPS private corporations indicate, it is possible for Congress to permit the Postal Service to be privatized. However, as the columnist George Will has argued, the belief is in government, whatever is should forever be. Changing anything in the Postal Service is almost impossible. That is the political culture we now face in the United States. But something has to change. Something has to change in the way in which the United States Postal Service runs, how it operates itself, as well as how it collects revenue, and how it pays the benefits to its employees. How did the United States Postal Service get into this dismal situation? Well, there are at least three factors that explain the demise of the Postal Service. One is the existence of email. Well, you all know that, and I know it personally. It has had a profound effect on the Postal Service. You can even send Christmas cards and other greeting cards by means of email. There are now digital delivery systems for movies and the ability to send almost anything anywhere in an electronic format. And obviously, if you're using electronic format to mail and to send messages and to communicate, you're not going to write letters and put a stamp on it. This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, president of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. As many of you know, I have announced my retirement as Grace University's president, effective the 30th of June, 2012. An important aspect of my retirement is the decision to end the radio edition of Issues in Perspective. The last radio broadcast of Issues will be the weekend of the 28th, 29th of January. However, I will continue writing the weekly edition of Issues in Perspective, which you can access at www.issuesinperspective.com. The archive of past editions of Issues will remain at that site. Thank you for being a faithful listener and supporter of Issues in Perspective. To have had this radio ministry for nearly 20 years has been one of the joys of my life. I hope that you will continue to read Issues in Perspective at the website, issuesinperspective.com. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about Israel and its changing population. The mixing of political and religious ideas is central to understanding Judaism and the modern state of Israel. Thomas Friedman, in his book From Beirut to Jerusalem, argues that there are four distinct groups of Jews within modern Israel and the world, as a matter of fact. First is the largest and the, the most secular non-observant Jew who really built the modern state of Israel. Many of these are secular Zionists, in a sense, who came to Israel in part as a rebellion against their grandfathers and Orthodox Judaism. For these secular Jews, being in the land, erecting a modern society and army, and observing the Jewish holidays as national holidays, all substitute for religious observance and faith. 
The second group is religious Zionists, who are traditional or modern Orthodox Jews, who fully support the secular Zionist state, but insist it is not a substitute for the synagogue. The creation of the Jewish state of Israel is a religious messianic event, they would contend. The third group is a group of religious or messianic Zionists who see the rebirth of the Jewish state as the first stage in a process that will culminate with the coming of the Messiah. The state is the necessary instrument for bringing the Messiah. Every inch of the land of Israel must be settled, and all defense and foreign policies are devoted to that end. Fourth is the final group, the ultra-Orthodox, non-Zionist Jews, who do not regard the Jewish state as important. Only when the personal Messiah returns, they argue, and the rule of Jewish law is complete, will the true Jewish state be created. Therefore, Jews today reject the teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Except among this ultra-Orthodox and some Messianic Zionists, the idea of a personal Messiah who will return to bring about a kingdom of peace, righteousness, and justice is foreign. The Messianic idea is either politicized or associated with the modern state of Israel or rejected as an aspect of an antiquated belief of a dead form of Judaism. Well, in 2012, the situation in modern Israel is even more problematic once a small minority in Israel, Orthodox Jews are now in the forefront of politics, often influencing the policy decisions of the state of Israel. According to the journal The Economist, they comprise 40% of the current ruling coalition's members and over 40% of new army officers and combat soldiers. In addition, the birth rate of Orthodox Jews in Israel is more than double that of the secular Jewish population, meaning that their power and their influence will continue to grow. Under the current political leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, the religious Zionists and the ultra-Orthodox Jews have formed a working relationship. Both of these groups defend their assets, be it settlements on the West Bank, where they form at least 70% of the Jewish population, or the separate Torah educational systems they have created, both with state backing. In short, both argue that Israel's Jewish character is more vital than its democratic one. Secular Jews, who were the key force in founding the modern nation-state of Israel, now fear the emerging power of the Orthodox Jews. In fact, most secular Jews have left Jerusalem for Tel Aviv or Haifa on the coast. The difference between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv in modern Israel is marked. Tel Aviv is a modern city that resembles New York or Chicago. Jerusalem is becoming a city of religious Zionists and Orthodox Jews, all of which are in constant conflict with resentful Arabs who live in the eastern part of the city. The growing influence of Orthodox Jewry is powerful and significant. Under pressure from rabbinical authorities and their disciples, the hotter-headed religious soldiers boycott military pageants at which women perform. Municipalities cancel concerts with female artists or insist that they fully cover their bodies. They remove advertising of even modestly clad women from streets and buses. In ultra-Orthodox suburbs of, say, Tel Aviv, women do not even drive cars. 
Finally, the Orthodox Jewish population tends to be more dismissive of Arabs than secular Jews and willing to promote laws banning Arabs from living in Jewish neighborhoods. In addition, some polls even suggest that a high percentage of religious Jews would deny non-Jews the right to vote in Israel. The political realities of all of these positions are volatile and obviously explosive. What then does a modern Jew believe? What is the theology of much of modern Judaism? With the end of the temple in A.D. 70 when Rome destroyed it, and all the sacrificial system and priests associated with it, a major change occurred in Judaism. Because now the focal point was no longer temple, it was the law. The entire body of written and oral tradition of Judaism is what is now called Torah, which represents to the Jew the whole mystery and tangible expression of God. The debates, discussions, and decisions of scholars and rabbis on the meaning of Torah were eventually compiled into a monumental work called the Talmud, which aids the typical Jew in making the connection between theology and life. Throughout Jewish history, there has not been much focus on articulating a creed or a confession of what Jews actually believe. The most significant attempt was during the 12th century, when a Jewish scholar and teacher, Moses Maimonides, listed 13 articles. This list is a part still of the Orthodox Authorized Prayer Book, which many Orthodox Jews still use. Let me just quickly summarize what uh, Mamiades said in his attempt to synthesize and summarize what Jews believe. There are 13 statements, a belief in the existence of a creator and providence, belief in his unity, belief is in his incorporeality, meaning he's not of flesh and blood, belief in his eternity, belief that to him alone, to God alone, is worship due, belief in the words of the prophets in the Old Testament, belief that Moses was the greatest of all the prophets, Belief in the revelation of the Lord to Moses at Sinai. Belief in the immutability of the revealed law, meaning it cannot be changed. Belief that God is omniscient. Belief in the retribution in this world and hereafter. Belief in the coming of the Messiah and belief in the resurrection of the dead. Amides tried to summarize what Jews believed, and that's the product of that. But let me be more specific. What are some of the key theological ideas and summarize them under certain headings? God. Well, the theological center of Judaism is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, what they call the Shema. Hero is the Lord, Yahweh, is our God, Elohim. The Lord is one. Jews are to love him with heart, soul, and strength. God is transcendent beyond the physical world and is the creator of all there is. God is a God of righteousness and holiness, justice, and love. He deserves singular worship and devotion. As the creator, he creates humans in his image, which becomes the basis for the value and worth of all human beings. Jews teach that God's revelation to humanity in the Old Testament is how we as creatures know about him and how we understand him and who he is. Well, how does a typical Jew look at Scripture? Well, Judaism looks at Scripture differently than Christianity, of course. The Old Testament books remain the center of Jewish Scripture. In fact, between A.D. 69 and A.D. 90, a group of Jewish scholars, students, and rabbis gathered in Jamnia in Israel to finalize and really authorize what books exactly were in the Old Testament canon. 
They agreed to group the Old Testament into the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets, the history books of Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and the major and minor prophets, and then the miscellaneous books, which would be the rest of the Old Testament. For most Jews, these books are canon. They are the authoritative revelation of God. However, over the history of Judaism, other books of importance have been added. About A.D. 200, the Mishnah was added, which includes about 4,000 precepts of rabbinic law. About A.D. 500, the Mishnah was combined with the Halakha, the oral tradition of the Jewish people, and the Haggadah, multiple synagogue homilies, to form the Talmud. If you put all books that comprise the Talmud on a single shelf, you would have 36 volumes. For Orthodox Jews, not only is the Torah their daily guide for life, but so is the Talmud, all 36 volumes for the most part. They seek to bring their lives into meticulous conformity with both Torah and the Talmud. Eating procedures are very important to the Orthodox Jew. They will, of course, not eat pork or shellfish, but animals that are slaughtered for eating must be done so in a special kosher manner, which is certified by a rabbi. Further, Orthodox Jews will not work, travel, use the phone, touch money, or even pose for photographs on the Sabbath. There are multiple examples of other restrictions from the Talmud. The Orthodox Jewish life is a very rigid life, whereas conservative Jews and Reformed Jews have departed very significantly from Orthodox Jewry. Conservative Jews are more lenient in their interpretations of the law, while Reformed Jews teach that principles are more important than practice. In fact, Reformed Jews rarely observe dietary or Sabbath restrictions. Well, what about Jewish customs and festivals? Well, whether a Jew is Orthodox, conservative, or Reformed, there is agreement on one thing, the observance of the Sabbath. For the Jew, the Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday night, continues until sundown Saturday night. In Orthodox and some conservative Jewish homes, as the sun is setting on Friday, the mother normally lights the traditional candles and gives the blessing, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your laws and commanded us to kindle the Sabbath light. The Father then blesses the wine, then everyone has a sip, and he slices the Sabbath bread. After the Sabbath meal, conservative and Reformed families often go to the synagogue. For the Orthodox Jewish family, the main service is on Saturday morning, and they and most conservatives attend another Saturday service that afternoon. These are, there are other holy days within Judaism. For example, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. These holy days are characterized by repentance, prayer, acts of kindness toward others. This period of self-examination results in open confession and a commitment to abstain from those sins in the year to come. Although the Day of Atonement is wrapped around the Old Testament sacrifice of the Lamb, which atoned or covered sin, the idea of substitutionary sacrifice is lost in much of modern Judaism. Another central holiday is, of course, the celebration of the Passover. Preceded by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where all leaven is removed from the home and occurring about the same time as Christian celebration of Easter, Passover begins with a question from the youngest son, Father, why is this night different from all other nights? 
an older family member answers, We were slaves in, to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Eternal, our God, led us from there with a mighty hand. The Passover meal involves a roast shank bone to remind the family of the lamb that was slain and whose blood was sprinkled on the doors so that the angel of death would recognize, would indeed recognize Jewish homes and pass over them. Today, the Passover celebration includes not only prayers and special foods, but games for the children as well. And then when a Jewish boy reaches the age of 13, he becomes a son of the commandment or of the covenant called a bar mitzvah and is called upon in the reading of Torah on Sabbath following his birthday. And on that occasion, he then recites these words, Blessed art thou, Lord of God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from all peoples and has given us thy Torah. Today, in some Jewish synagogues, girls go through a similar ceremony, which is called the bat mitzvah. That is a bit more common in Reform Jewish synagogues. Finally, in this brief survey of modern Israel, its population disparity and problems, the rise of Orthodox Jewishness, and what Jewish people believe, I need to comment on the Messiah. For Jews of the conservative and Reformed perspective, the belief in a coming personal Messiah who will deliver Israel and bring about the consummation of history is typically no longer a viable belief. Indeed, for many Jews, as I commented earlier, the rebirth of the modern state of Israel in 1948 is directly associated with the idea of Messiah. For one of the founders of the state, David Ben-Gurion, the Messianic vision is centralized in the establishment of the state. He wrote, The ingathering of the exiles, the return of the Jewish people to the land, is the beginning of the realization of the Messianic vision. That's a quote from David Ben-Gurion. So typically, as a broad-based statement, typically a modern Jewish person, except for many Orthodox Jews, no longer hold to the idea of a personal Messiah who will return. Many of them see the creation of the modern state as, in effect, the fulfillment of that idea. Modern Jewish situation in Israel, as well as Jewish Theology and doctrine throughout the world among the 17.5 million or so Jews is complex. It's, it's not simple. And what I've tried to do in this perspective is give a little bit of a sense of this complexity and diversity within modern Judaism. Let me move in our second and final perspective on the program to some thoughts about the United States Postal Service. Should we privatize the Postal Service? The United States Postal Service is obviously in trouble. It has urged Congress to allow it to cancel Saturday deliveries. There's even some discussion about the possibility of moving deliveries to a a three-day-a-week delivery system. In this last fiscal year, the United States Postal Service lost $5.1 billion, with total losses exceeding over $14 billion dollars which incidentally is an amount larger than the state, 35 states budget within the United States. That's astounding. Well, how do we think about this complex situation and the obvious problems financially that the Postal Service is having? Well, Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution says that Congress shall have the power to establish post offices and post roads. Well, as existence of FedEx and UPS, private corporations, indicate, 
it is possible for Congress to permit the Postal Service to be privatized. However, as the columnist George Will has argued, the belief is in government, whatever is should forever be. Changing anything in the Postal Service is almost impossible. That is the political culture we now face in the United States. But something has to change. Something has to change in the way in which the United States Postal Service runs, how it operates itself, as well as how it collects revenue, and how it pays the benefits to its employees. Well, how did the United States Postal Service get into this dismal situation? Well, there are at least three factors that explain the demise of the Postal Service. One is the existence of email. Well, you all know that, and I know it personally. It has had a profound effect on the Postal Service. You can even send Christmas cards and other greeting cards by means of email. There are now digital delivery systems for movies and the ability to send almost anything anywhere in an electronic format. And obviously, if you're using electronic format to mail and to send messages and to communicate, you're not going to write letters and put a stamp on it. A second reason. The United States Postal Service is the nation's second largest civilian employer, with nearly 653,000 employees. The United States Postal Service, all studies have shown, must shed about one-third of this workforce if it is going to remain viable. The problem is that 80%, that's 80% of postal service costs are labor costs. That compares with 53% for UPS and 32% for FedEx. Obviously, these high labor costs make it very difficult for the Postal Service to be competitive. And the third reason, which is really connected to the other two, is that the volume of mail has declined about 20% over the last five years. There's little doubt that that decline will accelerate in years to come. Now, dear people, it will require an act of Congress to change much of this. But does not wisdom dictate that the United States government should consider permitting a private company to take over the Postal Service? Allow the free market to force the Postal Service to be competitive. I know of no real proposal to seriously do, deal with all the challenges currently that the United States Postal Service faces. But I do know that the Postal Service cannot continue doing the same thing and expect to survive. The federal government cannot further subsidize the Postal Service because of its own debt burden. So is it not prudent for a private company answerable to its stockholders to take over the delivery of the mail? Someone one time defined insanity as continuing to do the same thing but expecting different results. That seems to be the dilemma of the United States Postal Service. And unless and until the United States Congress faces this reality, we will continue to do that which is insane, doing the same thing but expecting different results. May God help us 
may he give our leaders wisdom to know how to correct the postal system. Certainly privatizing it is one viable option for their consideration. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.